you will turn back with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. I will apologize in advance and thank you for your patience because I'm losing my voice. I was uh, thinking back on um, all the years I would listen to Dad preach and he would keep a bottle of pepper juice up under the pulpit. If you ever lost it, his voice, he would take a shot of pepper juice. So, I don't, we don't have that. So if I lose my voice, all right, Revelation chapter four, and we're including our study in this chapter this morning and wanted to, to take us back and remind us where we started Revelation chapter promise that we have from the Lord Jesus Christ in verse three, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear who keep what is written in it. Time is near. Bless the Lord Jesus and Heavenly Father. Thank you again for your word. Thank you for this glimpse that we have through your servant John into the throne room. You get a foretaste, Lord, of what it will be like to be in person, close to you, face to face. We are, we are one day magnificently transformed grace. Understand what unhindered worship is. Father, I pray as we look at your word this morning, you might strengthen and encourage us. You might challenge us. We ask, Lord, that you would, through the power of your Holy Spirit, regenerate the dead, that your word would not return void, accomplish all that you would return as we complete our study in Revelation chapter 4, the overwhelming theme that keeps coming back to me is that everything revolves around the throne. As we've gone through this chapter, we see that. And the throne of God has been and is now and always will be established. That's what this chapter reminds us of. It's a reminder that God is sovereignly ordering all things after the counsel of his own will for the praise of his own glory. And this chapter helps us get that truth. As I read Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3, it was a promise of blessing to the embattled church. And as we went through the, the letters to the seven churches, many of whom were going through incredibly difficult persecution, there's a promise of blessing. And, and this is one of the aspects of that. We're, Rome is used 47 times in the book of Revelation. It was written to remind the church that God is sovereignly ruling over the affairs of this life. And as bleak as it looks sometimes, and as, as uh, discouraging as it may look sometimes, God is in control. We as the church must find ourselves in it because it's true. It's not just pie in the sky. It's Absolute truth. As we approach the subject matter of worship this morning, it is an overwhelming and massive subject matter. And I promise you that this will not be an exhaustive look at the subject of worship. But this is just a glimpse from these um, few verses here, the latter part of Revelation chapter 4. Uh, there's going to be much unsaid about the subject of worship. It's not exhaustive. But what we have here, I think, and I hope, and I trust, 
and urge us to treasure God deep in our affection. So on our final point, to the throne, sanctified worship. I say sanctified because in this fallen sinful world, much of what is called worship is not sanctified at all. Much of modern worship does not meet the true litmus test. We'll look at in just a minute. That is that they that worship God, the true worshipers, must worship him in spirit and in truth. That is according to his word. And I I know that we wrestle with this as believers. And, and one of the pictures that we see in Revelation chapter 4 is the 24 elders clothed in white garments. They're freed from the trappings of sin. As we sit here this morning, I, I read a great quote from Stephen Sharnock, the Puritan. He says this, we bear in our bosom a nest of turbulent thoughts, which like busy gnats be buzzing about us while, while we are in our most inward and spiritual converses. This is our dilemma. Something other than God's word will rest assured be vying for your attentions as we sit here and as we approach God's word. Despite our best intentions, why? Because that not yet completely free our vestiges of sin. We have to fight with this. We have to wrestle with this. But chapter 4 reminds us that in the heavenly sanctuary, there's nothing left of sin to, limit, to hinder and limit worship. This morning, I want to look at three points from our text. The nature of worship revealed, verses 8 and 9. The posture of worship, and then the purpose of worship claimed, verse 11. So first off, let's define what we're talking about. That is a big question. Um, and I found, a, I think, a pretty solid definition in Lexham's Theological Wordbook. Says this quote, worship is the reverential response of creation, the all encompassing magnificence of God. And it is the odd response, the saving acts, praiseworthy character. Pretty solid definition. The 1689 London Baptist Confession helps us as well. It says this in chapter 22. The light of nature demonstrates that, that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all. He is just and good and does good to everyone. Therefore, we should be feared, loved, praised, called on, trusted in, and served with all the heart, all the soul, and all the strength. But the acceptable way to worship the true God is instituted by him and is delimited by his own revealed will. Thus, we may not be worshipped, he may not be worshipped according to human imagination or inventions, or the suggestions of Satan, nor through any visible representations, or in any other way that is not prescribed in the Holy Spirit. We looked at the description of God on the throne. We talked about the fact that a visual is, is greatly lacking in it, right? John is not given um, to us through this revelation, a picture of what God looks like. Why? Because we would certainly make idolaters of ourselves. 
Calvin sums it up very well. He says, quote, God disapproves of all modes of worship, not expressly sanctioned by his word. All right, so number one, the nature of worship revealed. In verse eight, we find the four living creatures, each of them with six wings. Their eyes are full of eyes all around in the day. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is. First, I want to convey to you that the nature of worship is such that it, that it can only come from living creatures. You see that? Four living creatures. We get caught up trying to visualize the imagery that John is writing for us, but I want you to see the primary characteristic of these angelic beings is that they are living creatures. Um, I remember the first time one of the boys came to me and told me about this awesome new game they were playing called Minecraft. And there were these creatures called creepers. And have you guys heard of creepers? In the game, there are these hostile zombie mobs that um, do everything to undo the building and the progress that you make in creating these these towns and cities. They are a vestige of life, but they're not really alive. And I want to take you to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, Jesus converses with a dead religious leader. And then we go to John chapter 4, and Jesus converses with a dead woman at the well. And a lot of times we look at the transition from John chapter 3 to 4 as if it's a complete change in teaching or thought, but it's really not. It's the same conversation. If you examine John 3 and John 4, you will find that both are dealing with the matter of regeneration. So turn to me, turn with me to John chapter 4. It, 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 um, it illustrates an incredible truth that we must understand if we're to understand the nature of it. John chapter 4, verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaria. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as he did, or as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband. Come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. You have five husbands. 
you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming. It's now here when, when the true worshipers will worship the Father, spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus approaches Jesus by night, have a an undercover conversation. He immediately tells Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Because without being born again, and the idea there is regeneration, without being regenerated, you can't see and you cannot understand the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was immediately cut to the core. This is the same conversation in John chapter 4 that Jesus is having with the woman at the well. The living water that Jesus is speaking of is the Holy Spirit. In, in Samaria, water is life. He's talking about spiritual life to this woman. This is the same conversation he had with Nicodemus with only a slightly different approach. But the need for the religious leader and the, and the prostitute is identical. It's the same need. Nicodemus was well-respected. He was a teacher. Everybody around him would never have questioned whether or not he was a follower of God. And yet he was dead. Here we have a woman who um, had no less than six men in her life and a laundry list of, of sin around her in her history. And her need is exactly the same. It is the same for you and I. Unless we are born again, there is no spiritual life. There is no seeing. There is no understanding. And it's interesting to me, Jesus, via the direct work of the Holy Spirit, illuminates your sin. When he tells her, you've had five husbands. And then he says, you don't know what you worship. Why? He's telling her, she's dead. He's dead in trespasses and sins. He equates genuine worship with knowledge. She is the secular naturalist here. He says, when the Messiah comes, he will set this straight. Then we will know. In other words, and how many times have you, have you spoken to somebody, talking to them about the Lord, and their response is why, I, essentially, it's I need more proof. If I have more proof, if I have more evidence, then I will believe. I read a, an article came across my my email, and it reminded me of this point that information is not a replacement for regeneration. Information is not a replacement for regeneration. 
So here's a view, a dead man's view on God's creation. What does Psalm 19, 1 tell us? The heavens declare the glory of the God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So this article that I was telling you about says this, the remarkable James Webb telescope. Anybody heard of that? Apparently it's famous now. I, I was still in the Hubble world. Um, the remarkable James Webb telescope has now offered mankind a possible glimpse of the farthest starlight from Earth anyone has ever seen. Wow. In a galaxy that was formed closer to the original Big Bang than any galaxy seen before. This is where we go off the rails. Two galaxies, billions of light years further behind the giant galaxy cluster Abel 2744 were discovered by the Webb Telescope. One is estimated as having come into existence 450 million years after the Big Bang. This is the commentary on what this telescope is saying. And the scientist says this, quote, we've nailed something that is incredibly fascinating. These observations just make your head explode. This is a whole new chapter in astronomy. It's like an archaeological dig. Daniel mentioned that this morning. And suddenly you find a lost city or something that you, don't, you didn't know about. It's just staggering. These galaxies would have had to have started coming together maybe just 100 million years after the Big Bang. Nobody expected that the Dark Ages would have ended so early. So there is a scientist commentating commentary on what they're seeing through this telescope. What is he really saying about himself? He doesn't know everything, but more importantly, the need of this scientist spiritual life and he can't see god has revealed himself through the heavens he's put his glory on display he can't see it this guy is not lacking in intelligence he doesn't have an intellectual barrier he's dead he's dead so back to the woman, the woman at the well, Jesus brings the final blow of the axe to the root regarding her deadness when she says, someday when the Messiah comes, he will tell us all things and we'll fully understand. What she's really saying is someday I'll believe because I'll have all the evidence. And Jesus says, you are so dead that you don't see the Messiah talking to you right in front of her. Problem was not location or information, it was deadness. So, this is the existential question in regard to worship. Why must creatures be living to worship God? The answer is a dead man cannot worship God. Can't. We see this pictured in the, the Levitical law, and we said this many times when we went through Leviticus and Numbers. Um, as we studied, continue our study through the Old Testament, it was an incredible blessing. Because what a picture the Levitical law paints for us. In Numbers 6, 1 through 8, and I'm not going to read all of it, but it, it is giving the description of what must happen for a Nazarite. And when he gives himself and separates himself to the Lord in verse 6, he shall not go near a dead body. That's interesting. 
not even for his father or for his mother, for brother or sister if they die. That shall make himself unclean because the separation to God is on his head. All the days of the separation, he is holy to the Lord. Why did God tell Israel that if you're a Nazarite, you can't touch a dead body and still be holy? Why? He's dead. What, what, what is death all about? The wages of what? Sin is death. The impact of sin is death. It cannot be in the presence of God. It can't. So John here, and he says it twice in this text, he's talking about living creatures, those that are alive. Remember Samson who took the Nazarite vow. What did he do with the honey? You guys remember? Where, was, where did he find the honeycomb? Lion was what was the lion and violated his commitment. You guys remember that 1989 movie, Weekend at Bernie's? I'm not saying I recommend it, but I remember it well. Um, the premise of the movie was that these two guys who worked for their boss were invited to his house for the weekend, and when they arrived there, he was dead, and they didn't want anybody to think that they killed him. So they took his corpse around with them everywhere they went, and they tried to make him look like he was alive, and that was the movie. Well, scripture reminds us of what dead man can't do. And I want you to think about the fact that, that modern worship outside of this context, that it must be from living, spiritually alive saints, is nothing but carrying corpse around and propping them up to make them look alive. Scripture reminds us of what dead men can't do. In John 3, 3, Jesus said to Nicodemus, um, you must be born again. Except a man be born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. There is no visualization of the kingdom of God for dead men. In John 14, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. Listen, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. A dead man can't receive the Holy Spirit here all the time. We heal to dead sinners. And, and the misinterpretation and the mispreaching of the work of the Spirit of God is if we are sovereign in the Spirit of God. A dead man will not accept or submit to the things of God. 1 Corinthians 2, 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. He won't submit. He won't obey. A dead man cannot will to give himself and herself spiritual birth. How do we know that? Well, Jesus says, the word says in John 1, 13, if we're born not of blood, or of the will of the flesh, or the will of the name of God. In John 6, 63, Jesus said, it is the spirit who gives life. What does the flesh do in terms of help? Jesus said, the flesh is no help at all. In the King James Version, if you've memorized that, the, the flesh profits nothing. 
You bring nothing to the table but your deadness. That's what Jesus is saying. A dead man can't please God. Romans 8. For they that are after the flesh mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. So that then they that are in the flesh, what? Cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be the spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, the existential question, because we can sit in these pews or these chairs and, and look just like everyone else, like we're worshiping God. We can be dead. We can be going through the motions. You must be born again, the scripture says, and regeneration is the sovereign work of the Spirit of God, whereby he miraculously gives spiritual life to a dead sinner. There is no self-resuscitation with regeneration. It is the work of God, 100%. We don't contribute. We don't um, We don't uh, meet him halfway. Dead. Dead men. Let's put it this way. Dead men do nothing. Hopefully that shatters our ego. R.C. Sproul, in his book on worship, A Taste of Heaven, says this. The worship to which we are called in our state is far too important to be left to personal preferences, to whims, or to marketing strategies. It is the pleasing of God that is that is at the heart of worship. Therefore, our worship must be informed at every point by the word of God. So we seek God's instruction for worship that is pleasing to you. How do we please you? Guess what? Dead men don't have faith. Without faith, what? Secondly, the nature of worship is eternal. We see the four living creatures working tirelessly to worship God. What does it tell us about the nature of God? When the work to praise him is never done. The work to praise him is never done. Their statement about who he is is that he he was and is and is to come. And this is a restatement we find in Revelation chapter 1, 4 through 8. But this gives us insight into our heavenly work. The question that I would ask you this morning is when does that heavenly work of worship begin for you and I? The answer to that is based on what we just talked about at first life. You go to Acts chapter 9. Um, you know the passage well, but Paul is in the in the business of chasing down, hunting, persecuting, and doing away with Christianity. And he thinks he's doing God a favor. And Jesus meets him on the road, Damascus. An interruption, arrests him, if you will. And after this happens, God miraculously converts Paul, regenerates him, gives him life. And we find Ananias, a disciple, verse um, 10 of Acts 9. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Remember what he said? Behold, he is praying. And Ananias obviously has some trepidation because Saul is well known, right? 
there's risk involved to go to see him. But the Lord Jesus lays his fears by telling him that, that Paul is praying. What is he telling him? Paul is alive. You're Garrett. He's now worshiping me. The third thing I want you to see from this is that the nature of worship is Godward, meaning its sole focus is on the holy character of God. Worship is not about worship is not about us. We live in such a, a self-centered, self-focused, self-obsessed culture. And that has impacted the church. Where the man's deadness and fallenness, as he applies that, that deadness to theology and he applies that deadness to worship, we find an appeal to please ourselves as we worship God. There's nothing like that in view here. I want you to see that. Worship is Godward. What is seen here, or what is not seen here in Revelation chapter 4? There are no laser lights. There's no smoke machines. There's no rock concert setting. There's no seeker-sensitive accoutrements to get our emotions stoked up. You know what that is? And I'm, I want to be careful here and not be overly critical, but when we have to get worked up to worship God, we're summoning the dead. That's what we're doing. There's, there is nothing in uh, Revelation chapter 4 that speaks of that response to a holy, righteous, almighty God. Nothing. The only thing that is necessary to worship him is to recognize that I am the creature and he is the creator. The rest spontaneously there's no working up of the angels here to get them excited about what they have to do they do it day and night and in our sinful tendency we would say well wouldn't they get tired of that no see we would ask that question because we don't understand the nature and the character of god much of modern worship is trying to make the corpse look alive for the living, God is more than enough to, to eternally fill and satisfy the heavenly worshiper. Their, their cry is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The word holy is the word set apart, sacred. It is mentioned three times. Why is that? Why is, is the, the central characteristic that is proclaimed by these angels mentioned three times? And by the way, we've heard this before. Where? In Isaiah chapter 6. This is a, the same vision that Isaiah has when he sees um, the Lord sitting upon his throne high and lifted up. In Isaiah's vision, they're saying the same thing. Thousands of years later, in John's vision, what do the angels say? Same thing. Is God any less holy? Thousands of years later, no. The angels are still enraptured with worship for God. And the essence of their worship is a recognition of the holiness, the sacredness, the set-apartedness, if you will, of who God is in his character. 
You see the word holy used three times in Lord God Almighty. Lord meaning supreme in authority. God, theos, supreme divinity, almighty, all ruling, ruler of the universe. All the same, the words pointing towards the same thing. God rules in supreme authority, supreme divinity. There is none like him, none to compare him to. He is the almighty, unquestioned ruler of the universe, and he does everything from holiness. Why is that important? Well, when we take God's character and we isolate certain things, for example, let's say God is love. Would you all agree with God is love according to God's word? Yes. But if I take his attribute of love and I separate it from holiness, where do I end up? I end up like the universalist that said God, God loves everyone. Therefore, he's going to save everyone in the end. If I separate God's love from his holiness, what do I get? I get error. It's repeated three times for us here so that we get this. We understand that God does everything from the basis of his holy character. If he loves us, he loves us with a holy love. If he is merciful to us, he, he is merciful based on his holiness. If he gives us justice, is he any less holy? mentioned three times here. This is the holy apartness from God. And Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray in Matthew 6, 9 said this, pray then like this, our father, where? In heaven. Hallowed, it's the same word in the Greek, hallowed, um, holy, your, consecrated, venerated, be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus teaching his disciples to pray. He said the first thing you do when you approach the throne of God is to recognize that you are talking to the almighty, holy God, the ruler of all the universe. Don't go there flippantly. And then the immediate response Jesus tells his disciples is, when we see God is holy, what will happen? The next thing is, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Holiness and our recognition of it is followed by our submission and our obedience. In worship, God's holiness calls for immediate submission. It is to understand and submit to the creator-creature dynamic. The essence of sin is me making myself creator. We see this worked out in our culture, and I, I saw this this week at in shock, but I was amazed. Um, the LGBTQ plus arena, as I, I guess it's new, a trigender person, either male or female, or both. Trigender. Wait a minute. That's a thinly veiled coronation of myself as God. A trigendered human being. This is me putting myself on the throne, that I am the center of my universe. True genuine worship sees ourselves for what we are. We are the creature. He is the creator. We are subject to him. We must obey him. And the question for us this morning is, are you submitted to the creator or are you in rebellion to him? Worship for the believer in this fallen world is to submit to the authority of the creator. What does that look like? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, 
Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify her. Are we as husbands, as we're subjected to Christ, loving our wives in such a way as to contribute and help them in their process of sanctification? It says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, children obey your parents in the Lord. This is right. What does submission look like when we recognize we're the creature and who is the creator? Well, it's to be subjected to Christ as a father and a husband. It is to be subjected to the husband as unto Christ for the wives. It is to be subjected to parents as unto Christ if you're children. In the church, it looks like subjection to the elders that God has ordained in authority. Submission to his word. All is unto Christ. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The Christian in this culture that submits will stick out. It's what worship in this, in this sinful, fallen world looks like. Obedience. God. Verse 9, and when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever. The essence here of worship that we see is the giving of glory, honor, and thanks to God. Glory is from the word doxin. We get the word doxology from it. In the Old Testament, it's the word kavod, which means weighty and splendor. God's glory is his weightiness, his splendor on full display. We're pronouncing and proclaiming worship by giving him glory and honor. Honor means to, to highly esteem him or value him. And then thanks. Thanks is given. I want you to see this. Thanks is given to God for who he is, not merely for what he has done in creation and redemption. The first aspect of worship that we see here is they're thanking God for who he is. It's easy to thank God when he blesses you with something. Talk about Solomon and all the blessings that he had. You think it was easy for him to thank God for that? When was the last time you thanked God for who? Secondly, point number two is the posture of worship. In verse 10, we see the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their thrones before the throne. Fall down and prostrate themselves in humility. You know what's missing here? There's no sense of embarrassment, no sense of a loss of dignity for them to cast themselves on the ground before the throne of God. You realize this worship is the most dignified thing that we can do if we were created. Worship is the most dignified thing that we can do. Prostrate themselves in humility before the throne. And then it says they cast their crowns. We talked about crowns in detail last week. I won't go back into it. But the, the idea of the crowns that are earned, quote unquote, are given back. The crowns in reality has been graced to us given back to him. 
They cast their crowns before the throne. Here's an application for us. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, after explaining the wonders of God's sovereign electing grace in Romans 9, 10, and 11, what does Paul say is the right response to that? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship or your spiritual worship, reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, And do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. God has given us so much. What is the least we can do? And I'm not talking about earning our salvation. That's not what's in view here. The picture is we're already saved. He has magnificently saved us with his grace. What is least we can do to give ourselves back to him glorify him in our bodies in this life here and now why do we do that paul says in first corinthians 6 19 and 20 he's talking about fornication not giving our bodies for something it wasn't created for god did not create our bodies to sin with them so in service to god give our bodies back to him Thirdly and lastly, the purpose of worship proclaimed. Look at verse 11. This is what they were saying. Worthy are you, O Lord, our, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed. Lord God Almighty alone is worthy of worship. First because of who he is, but also because of what he has exercised in his holy will and creation. So it shifts from who he is in his nature to what he has done. He says, for you created all things, and by your will, they existed and were created. Remember up in verse 9 when we looked at it? It was glory, honor, and thanks. Here, it is glory, honor, and power. The word power here in the Greek, diamond, force or miraculous power to create. There are some creative folks in our midst, our midst. Um, you made a really cool gift. But did you create that gift out of nothing? No. As a woodworker or a wannabe woodworker, I can take a tree and make furniture out of it, right? I can make sawdust out. Sometimes it looks more like sawdust than furniture. But what I can't do is create matter. I can't. The law of the conservation of matter reminds us of this, that matter can either be created or destroyed, except for God. Remember in Matthew chapter 14, verse 18, when Jesus has a hungry crowd, and he has 5,000 to feed with five loaves and five fishes? What makes that a miracle? What does he do? He creates matter. What is this text telling us in Matthew about who Jesus is? He is creator. He's God. When Jesus in John chapter 2 turned water into wine, 
Why is that miraculous? Scientists could, and I've, I've heard so many different ways of trying to explain it. Well, if, if you put the water into the wine bags, maybe it'll kind of assimilate. And the, the feast master said it was the best wine. You don't get good wine, and I am not a wine connoisseur, by the way, but you don't get good wine like that. What does wine take? Yes, time. Jesus turned water into wine. Again, a reminder that he is above the laws of nature. He created the laws of nature. And, and we see in verse 11 that we're worshiping God. We're giving to him glory and honor and power. And it exalts his power. His ability to miraculously create, to create out of nothing. Nothing. I mean, we can't even fathom that kind of power. We can't even fathom it. It's hard to imagine God speaking the earth into existence with his own word. Worship him for his power and creation. But let me remind you, if you were born again this morning, and the Spirit of God resides in you, God has worked a miracle in your life. That is not a natural uh, occurrence in nature for you to be born again. It's not. It is the sovereign work of the Spirit of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, you know this verse well. Therefore, if anyone is, is in Christ, he is what? New nature creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In verse 18, all this is from God. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the word to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might be. You see, you see that text and what's happening there? If God has given you life. There's, there's a response of worship here. What is that response? Paul says, you are now ambassadors for him. There's that living sacrifice picture again. He has entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation. God doesn't just save us to leave us. He puts us to work. All of creation exists for the purpose of glorifying God and was created for the purpose of worship. This is, this is clouded because of the fall. But he is, and he will, display and make public his character, his holiness. In Revelation, this, this whole study as we go through here is a picture and a reminder of what God is going to do to make all things new. As we close this morning, um, I want to remind you that this is a glimpse of the program. And it's a taste of what it will be like to be in the presence of God. John would not have been given this insight without being invited to come up here. Remember when we started the chapter, 
Christ invites him to come up. There is, by the way, no access to the Father but through Christ. In John chapter 14 and verse 6, it says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, in closing this morning, sanctified worship of God can only be done in spirit and in truth through Christ. Leaves us with two questions that I want to pose to you as we finish. Number one, are you alive this morning? Have you been made a new creature? So how do I know? Have you obeyed the gospel? The natural man has received not the things that are you resting in the finished work of Jesus for your salvation. If not, may God grant you life to cry out the name of your son. And then secondly, for the believers that are sitting here this morning, you the creature submitted to the sovereign rule and reign of the halt the holy almighty creator and how does this show up in your life it's an evidence people know when they look at our lives they're submitted to god Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word thank you for this thanks that we have true worship Lord, we long for that day when we will not be constrained by sin distractions Father, that we will be able to focus wholly and entirely and completely on you. We thank you that we have the promise that you will one day change us. We may not sleep, Lord, but you will change us at your return in a moment. Because there can be no sin in your presence. We can't come to you as we are. We will be dramatically, masterfully changed. We long for that day. Help us to worship you as we ought to do. In the name of Christ.